Tonight I want to speak about happiness. I was, uh, I was told by Bill Weber, the person who substituted for me on August 23rd, uh, and during his evening talk he was promoting the, uh, the uh, bicycle, the Buddhist bicycle pilgrimage. And he had been touring around to different sanghas, different communities, and inviting people to join the, the pilgrimage. And he reported to me that, uh, and I think he reported also to the group as he was speaking, he said, we have a happy sangha, one of the happier sanghas. And I had never really heard anything like that from anyone before, and never even thought about it. And it... it it got me thinking. Now, what is the uh, what is the what makes our sangha happy? What is it? What is that? Um, what is that quality? And what 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 does that mean to be happy? To be a happy sangha? What does it mean to be happy in general? And I started thinking about uh, about the fact that uh, one that we show up and that we're willing to to stop and bring ourselves to this uh, point of being present. And the fact that we stop and commit to bringing ourselves to the point of being present is very much the ingredient, a central ingredient in the arising of, uh, of concentration. It is a central uh, ingredient in the happiness that comes through a well-collected and concentrated heart and mind. And the fact that we, in on Tuesday night, we continually point again and again and again to this single point, right where, right where you are, right where life is touching you, that which is within and surrounds you in every moment, which is what we sometimes call present, Call the, the point of being present. When one does that in a continuous way, and we get a, a more concentrated version when we do it in numbers, it brings gladness to the heart. I often share with you on Tuesday nights one of my favorite passages from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, where he says, when the mind is, is kept away from its preoccupations or free of its preoccupations, and that's what happens when we put our attention right here in the simplicity of the present moment, we step out of the mind door, for the mind house for a little bit, and we just touch the, the bare reality of breathing, so sensations of smelling, of seeing, of hearing. We come into that single point. And this is one way of talking about this, is this is brushing, this is uh, keeping the mind away from its preoccupations. We're collecting ourselves. We're coming to this point right here. And he says when a mind is kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you really stay in it, and when we have a group that's doing that together, it makes it quite a lot more concentrated. When you, when you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you start to see, as he says in his quote, that it is permeated with a light and a love 
you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your something of your own nature. You just feel something, a kind of love and light. Whenever I say love and light, it sounds a little new agey, but a light and a love, I think it's, it sounds better in reverse. Light and a love that you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've touched into this, you won't be the same person again. The unruly mind, as it does in our life, will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return. As long as the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present moment. So that's what we do again and again. And according to the Buddhist teaching, when you concentrate your attention in the present moment, and the object of concentration is not uh, when the intention is to orient yourself to the present. The intention is to concentrate your mind, focus your mind. The objects are not as important as that intention, that engine of gathering and sustaining that which we do each week when we, we try to see what is reality here. So in order to see what reality is, we have to see the difference between the reality, which is very alive and, and full of light, and uh, the reality. We get to see the difference between that and uh, our imagination, our stories about reality. And the way the Buddha talked about it is that, that mind that is well-collected and well-composed, uh, that is one-pointed, it... Um, it allows for a, a kind of joy, called it the joy of concentration, the happiness of a concentrated mind. And he called it the, one of the first tastes of transcendental happiness. That's different. Transcendental happiness is different than the happiness of just uh, having a pleasant experience. It's different than the happiness that comes from getting what you want or different from the happiness that comes from getting rid of what you don't want. It's a happiness that is, that at least for when you experience it, it transcends all kinds of ordinary happiness. It really depends the kind of happiness that's usually dependent on uh, getting what you want or satisfying some kind of hunger. It transcends that. It's because, and why is it said to be transcendent of that? Because it is an it's, an, a cons- it's a happiness that is free of hunger. It is, and it's also, when our minds are collected and composed, it's not just a little, it's not just a, a quick hit. It's not like, um, it's not like hearing a song, or it's not like even having a wonderful sensual encounter. It's not like a, uh, great taste, which very fleeting, very fast. But it, it, when practiced well, it can be sustained for long periods of time. And it has, an, it has another effect, the happiness of concentration. I think this is what happens when we gather and we keep pointing to the present moment. We start to feel the, the deliciousness of abiding in a perhaps a little less disturbed way in the present moment. And it, it starts a process of, and this is clumsy the way I'll explain this, but it begins to slowly decondition, slowly melt away 
our tendency to need a lot of stimulation. So it begins to to help us appreciate a a great, delicious um, contentment, a a delicious sense of enoughness just to be simple and present. For the first time in, in, uh, I think, ever, I watched a talk that I gave. In fact, there are two people here tonight from the Edmonton, Alberta, Vipassana community who've been uh, coming to the retreats that I do up there for many years. And one year, the the community was nice enough to video the... um, the Dharma, the whole retreat. I didn't even know it was happening. It was on the, I did know it was happening, but I didn't pay attention to it. The camera was on the other side of the room. And I just gave a retreat as I would. And, and the, then they posted the, they spliced them or what it, edited them and they put them up on the internet. And I've never been able to bear to even hear my voice, let alone see myself. But I, I noticed that on the television that, um, that now the, the TV has, one of these programs has um, YouTube on the TV. So I was uh, hanging out and pulled it up, and, and there I was filling up this big TV set. <laughs> and I looked at this person, and almost unrecognizable, because I can't see myself from the outside. And I started listening, and one of the, um, one of the now I'm forgetting why I'm told, telling you this story. <laughs> What was I just talking about before that? Something of... Oh, concentration. Wow. See, one of the shadows of concentration, you can become so concentrated that you become oblivious to everything else that's around. Now, what was I... See? No. Let's just pause for a moment now and see if I can... Just hang out in this... This space. I have no recollection. <laughs> this is great. Senior mind. I've had a few of these lately. So, getting back to the concentrated mind. The well, I'll just get back to the conversation on happiness. I wondered what made us happy, what makes us a happy sangha. And my hunch is a little bit is that we're, we are very concentrated on the, the present moment. We do not concentrate as much on being good Buddhists, on doing it right. We're not as, we're not as focused on the form of practice, on whether you pay attention to your breath right or whether you whether you notice the nature of mind right, whether you bow right, whether you, whether you light candles right. Rites and rituals are not our, our, um, our focus. We, on the other hand, what we do do, because if we get caught too much in the form of our practice, we tend to, it tends to generate a lot of judgment. Judgment of ourselves, judgment of others. Judgment of our own practice, judgment of others. Instead, there is a lot of emphasis, and I think it's in the Buddha's teaching, 
the emphasis is on letting go. The emphasis is not clinging to views, not clinging to opinions, not clinging to rites and rituals. Anywhere where there's clinging, anywhere where there's a kind of holding on, and clinging and holding on usually comes in the form of, of some sense of identity, where we become identified with a view, identified with a view of ourselves. I'm either higher than, we, view, we tend to get identified with our comparisons, we get identified with what's right and being right and who's right, And all of that tends to produce tension. And I have noticed when I when I travel to, and I'll try to remember why I'm going to another place again. But I travel every year to lead retreats on the East Coast. And there are many East Coasters here on the West Coast, and West Coasters on the East Coast. But I noticed that I noticed that. the sister center to Spirit Rock that I lead retreats at every year, Insight Meditation Society, has a a flavor, a little bit more conservative flavor. And it seems the culture at at IMS has a lot of judgments about what goes on on the West Coast. (laughs) And has a, a much more, at least to my estimation, this could be just me judging the East Coast, but has a more, a little bit tighter, tighter view about what real practice is. And on the West Coast, we're, we're mostly a melting pot for everything. So I can understand why they might have different views, but you can actually feel it in the culture when you arrive there. It's, there's a, it's a little more serious. And serious is okay. Serious is good. But it, it, it tends to... Um, make people appear, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but appear less happy. And here, there's a, something about the West Coast in general. There's a, it's a little bit more laissez-faire, a little bit more you're free to be and free to practice in, in many different ways. And at least here on Tuesday night, I I like to think that the emphasis is on the heart of the Buddha's teaching, which is freedom, which is freedom. And then the second part about freedom being emphasized is that it's not just freedom after seven lifetimes. It's not just freedom after you've finished your next three-month retreat. It's the freedom that's available in every moment, at any moment when you are present with a mind free of clinging, free of clinging to ideas, free of clinging to rites and rituals, free of clinging to what you want to happen. Uh, If one can experience that for one moment in the span of life, that is a moment of freedom. And it is available to us. It's nearer than our breath any moment. And it's so easy to miss. And so there's an, I think we emphasize that on, on Tuesday night. So do you think that may be true, that that may be one of the secrets to why this might be a happy sangha? I don't know. I'm curious. What do you have to say? Why are we a happy sangha? Um, I'm, I'm troubled by it having to be a happy sangha because that makes me think that, well, that means are there unhappy sanghas? And then we, if we don't say that we're happy, does that mean we're, we fail and we're unhappy? And that's the fact that it's very judgmental. 
So maybe we're just a sangha, and we don't have to worry about whether we're happy or not. Well, you're right. We don't have to worry about it. I'd never thought about it before, and it really doesn't matter. However, I, it was, I was curious about it, and so I'm just, I was just checking it out with you. She thought about Tassahara, Green Gulch, and Zen Center. And, you know, I, I, that's where my practice began nearly 30 years ago, but, and I feel very indebted to that, but at the same time, I can't, I, I don't want to sit with them anymore, for the most part. I mean, I, it's just me. Right. Because this feels more flexible to me. This feels happier, and it does. It feels more accepting, and it's very form-oriented, and Soto Zen. Mm-hmm. So less less form. Think about that mm-hmm. as you, you thought about your history at Zen Center. You're not so inclined to sit there anymore. Please. May it be so. Thank you. I'm glad to get that reflection, but never. Please. I was actually going to say the exact same thing. I think it's because of your own practice of metta and because of your very frequent So it's all because of me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the comments, but I think it's also, I, I brought along, I, I found tonight that... Uh, There's a lot less less spiritual bypassing. Uh-huh. There's a lot less spiritual bypassing. For those of you who don't know what spiritual bypassing is, it's it's not really. It means uh, pretending you're just hiding out in a particular state and not really acknowledging how messy life is and how messy our own minds and our our own hearts can be. And yeah, I do think that we kind of let it all be here. But thank you. I saw a hand, Marlena. Although we take the practice very seriously, we don't take ourselves so seriously. I think that's true. Thank you for naming that. Linda. 
This didn't used to be a happy sangha. <laughs> it wasn't as happy. And I think I used to, um, people didn't used to talk to each other in here. It was very common. People didn't talk to each other, yes. And I remember once I went to Eugene Cash's sangha and I was shocked by how social it was. And then this sangha started to do the happiness hour. Yes. So something changed. There was some organization. I actually, uh, the beautiful, happy people in the sangha came together and helped us, helped us support the sangha, and that makes a huge difference. Okay. Just uh, getting back to the the sense of the uh, the strength in in being together and the, uh, that it's not just me, that it is all of us. I found again the, that wonderful uh, teachings from the internet. It's actually from, it's, it's lessons from geese. How many, have most of you heard this before, the lessons from geese? I'll, I'll just read a few. As each geese flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the birds that follow. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds 72% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. So people who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they're going quicker and easier because they're traveling on the thrust of one another. So it's clearly a, a group effort. When a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of flying alone. It quickly moves back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. Next, when the lead goose tires, it rotates back into the formation and another goose flies to the point position. Four, the geese flying in formation honk to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. <laughs> so we need to be keep honking too. And then last, when a goose gets sick, wounded, or shot down, two geese drop out of formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with it until it dies or is able to fly again. And I think that part about us letting not, uh, what I forgot how you put it, not uh, spiritual bypassing, really letting our pain bodies also show up here and be, be actually used as our path. Whatever it is that we're experiencing is the, I, I often call it equal opportunity mindfulness. Everything gets used in behalf of, of awakening to love and, and wisdom. <clears throat> so we use whatever's happening. So whatever your experience is tonight, sitting here, we, we let that be okay. We let that be received. And, and in that, we, we are able to more and more frequently sit right in the middle of it all. We experience not only the joy of a concentrated heart and mind from, from coming to the one point that is reality here and now, but we also develop, through being with all aspects of ourselves, we develop the uh, 
the next level of supramundane or transcendental happiness, which is the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of a mind that is not uh, that is not pushing things away, nor is it grasping, a mind that is uh, that is open-hearted and accepting of, of life as it's presenting itself, able to respond without, uh, without it, as much ill will, without much, as much clinging. So I, you know, th- to me, that's a lot of what we do here, is we, we follow the, uh, the steps, we follow the steps of the Eightfold Path. I may not name all those steps every week, but we are... As much as possible, we are following the first steps of the Eightfold Path where that are geared toward concentrating our hearts and minds on our speech, on our livelihoods, on our actions, and developing that foundation of, of, of kindness and morality. Uh, and we speak of that loosely and sometimes in a more focused way. The next 100-day retreat we'll do as a sangha will be focused a lot on developing that foundation of, of ethics and morality of what's called sila. And so we'll go through, hopefully each week, with some aspect of, of, uh, of wise action. So we, we talk about that. We also talk about the the uh, cultivation of energy and, and effort to stay here, to stay present, uh, cultivating concentration, cultivating mindfulness moment to moment as much as possible. And then finally, we, we talk about wisdom. We, I try never to let one week pass without reminding us of the, of the heart of the Eightfold Path, with wise understanding of the, the Four Noble Truths that fact that every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter how much we have or don't have, we have stress in our lives. We have, we have things that are hard to deal with. We have, uh, we have things that we uh, want that we don't have and, and things that we have that we don't want. And every single person has that. And that's just a fact of life. And we try to just every week talk about the facts of life. And that the Second noble truth, we, I think we allude to every week, that what adds mental suffering, what adds real, um, what adds insult to injury, what adds misery to a stressful situation is this chronic tendency to want things other than the way they are. Somehow think that something's really wrong if we have stress. And... That, that takes the form of this incessant tendency to, uh, to want things other than what's here and to feel averse to what's here, to feel grasping of what's not here, and then to, um, to, to have our mind really habitually, compulsively oriented toward the imagined future. So this is what the Buddha called, uh, called craving, or tanha. We try to talk about that every week. And then we also focus on, and I'm just circling around now, that there is an end to to that kind of mental stress, that every one of us is a split second, a half breath away from from cessation, from the 
from the falling away of the mind that is, is contentious with reality, that's, that's just the mind that's passing through, trying to get somewhere else. There's an end to that, and it comes with opening to things the way they are. To just stopping, just noticing, and trying to do it with as much of a loving heart as possible. Because then, of course, when we stop and we notice, we experience the residue of all of that, all of that running from silence. Our bodies are frozen. Our minds are, are restless and agitated. And so we, we, we try to find freedom right in the middle of that, just by stopping and noticing. Because in a moment of stopping and noticing, it's not compatible with clinging and condemning and and misidentification and misperception. It's just seeing things simply. And try to talk every week, in the, as I'm circling back again on the fourth noble truth, that there is a path. And that path is fulfilled by every moment that you take care of this, of this um, present moment, take care of yourself, take care of others. And that what really makes us happy is, is, is sila, ethics, a concentrated heart and mind, and a mind that's not clinging. And every one of us can be free. So I say it again and again. I call myself a one-note Johnny. I say the same thing over and over again. Try to do it a little different ways. But uh, I think that's what makes any sangha happy, is, is just hearing the, is being mingling with the Dharma, with the way things are. Clinging and condemning causes suffering. Letting go brings happiness and freedom. It's very simple. Hard to do, but simple. Hard to sustain. Because our habit is so much. And so, because, our, because it's so hard to sustain, because we're so mentally ill, so habituated to running from silence, we have to regard ourselves with, with just... Uh, inexhaustible mercy and compassion, self-love, and then compassion toward everyone else. Compassion toward the the, the Googlers who the Googles who are oblivious in their buses. Compassion toward the that's an inside joke from last week. Uh, compassion toward toward the shroud of the peop, the shroud of privilege of the obliviousness to the diversity in this world. Uh, Compassion toward toward our own reaction to all of the all of the ignorance and hatred. Uh, we just need mercy and compassion. So, to me, that's the the soup that we try to jump into every Tuesday to kind of bathe ourselves uh, and remember that happiness and peace is possible in this very life, in this very moment. I think that's all I really have to say. Any comments, questions before we call it a night? Anyway, thank you for your presence. Thank you for being a happy Sangha. I think it's, it's mutual sharing. I, I, can, I could not for a moment attribute this Sangha to me any more than I attribute it to exclusively to you. It's all of us. It's just the way it is. Please, David. I was going to thank you for your moment of forgetfulness. Oh. Now I don't feel so bad when I keep forgetting Glad to provide a senior moment. That's a prelude to the my 60th
birthday coming on October the 8th. <laughs> Shocking. Anybody have any tips on memory? <laughs> I'm open to it. Anyway, let's just sit quietly for a moment and just end with a poem from David White called Enough. Enough. These words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. So gathering all of the enoughness of our presence together, gathering together also any fruits, any goodness, any merit, any benefits from our having been together, and then sharing the the blessings, the benefits with with all beings, with a deep wish that everyone can have happy to be happy. that everyone can be happy and know the causes of happiness and have those causes increasing every moment. That everyone can be free of sorrow and the causes of sorrow decreasing every moment. A deep wish that all beings can recognize that experience of enoughness that sacred happiness that is our primordial nature here and now, and not lift out of this moment to find relief. And a deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the inevitable joys, stresses, sorrows with less reactivity, less grasping, less aversion. And a deep wish that our practice tonight and every every day, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated. May all beings live with ease. I think I remembered what I was going to talk about there. <laughs> but you know, I'll save it for another night. Anyway, thanks for your practice. And I hope to see as many of you or all of you on Saturday at Spirit Rock, where we love the house that Ego built. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.